like maybe not as expensive as like Kanye's or like something like Sean doing right now, uh, etc. Hello, Louie. Hello. Welcome to the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. <clears throat> Thanks for inviting me. Wonderful inviting. to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about what post-Keynesianism is? Because as many of my listeners know, Keynesianism is divided up into numerous schools, and even post-Keynesianism is divided into numerous schools. So it all gets rather confusing. It does. It's, um, <clears throat> boy, you start off with probably the hardest question to answer. <laughs> well, first of all, let me say that there is a difference between Keynesian and post-Keynesian. For me, if you're only asking me, Keynesian have sort of a remnant of more mainstream theory in them. People like Stiglitz and Krugman, um, they have sort of um, a foot in um, what's called neoclassical economics, so very traditional sort of mainstream economics. And, you know, they're sort of um, critical of the mainstream as well, while being part of the mainstream. Post-Keynesian are people who are very faithful to Keynes or some aspects of Keynes, because Keynes himself was also very sort of confused, but some more radical um, component of Keynes. You know, Keynes once described himself as being on the extreme left of celestial space, which he wasn't really, but I think post-Keynes would sort of identify themselves with that definition of Keynes, more radicalized. Um, and so in more specific terms, you know, one word that you read a lot in the post-Keynesian literature is arc, two words, the real world. And I, that's where post-Keynesian begin. I think they begin with what Keynes said, you know, a vigorous uh, or rigorous observation of the real world. And then we sort of um, build up theories based on this real world around us. So it's not about having a theory than applying it to the real world. Uh, and if they don't mesh, well, then we blame the real world. Instead, we look at the real world and we say, ah, this is how the real world operates. So let's build some policies based on how they actually work. So it's a more scientific approach than the neoclassical one. Well, you know, it is, I guess, you know, more scientific in that sense because it's based on, you know, for example, a theory of banks and um, a theory of banks. So instead of having this theory that may or may not resemble what banks do, post-Keynesians, which I would also include in their institutionalists, they would, you know, they would go into a bank and say, ah, well, how, what does a bank do? How does it really work? And then from there, propose ways of dealing with, with problems that banks may cause or, or um, like in the financial crisis, for example. And um, I, I, I just mentioned the financial crisis, and it's very interesting the, the way I define post-Keynesians because there were quite a few post-Keynesians who actually predicted the crisis. And the reason is that, like I said, we tend to look around us and see what's going on and how things work and that, in 2006 and 7, 
there were a lot of alarm bells going on, going off, I guess. And so a lot of people are saying, ah, there's a crisis coming. Whereas neoclassical economists, they're really sort of not concerned about what's going on. They're concerned about the theory itself. And so they couldn't really, and because your theory is not applicable to the real world, they couldn't predict the, the crisis. Right. And for those who are interested, Steve Keen's book, Debunking Economics, has a list of those economists who predicted the crisis. Yeah. Steve, Steve's book is now, I think, in second edition, and it's in French, and Spanish, and probably multi-other languages. It's a great book, and uh, he does a really good good job of, uh, of identifying, you know, those problems that I've, that I've stated, and also those economists who have predicted it. And like I said, there's a reason why they were, they predicted the crisis. Now, what is different about their models? Why were they able to predict it while the others were not? Well, you know, neoclassical theory, actually, or, or, or some version of it, something called uh, the efficient market hypothesis, which is a central core of mainstream economics, it's actually an approach that doesn't allow crises to happen. So you have a theory that, that first of all, claims that it's, it's detached from the real world, that it's not based on observations of the real world, and a theory that says crises cannot happen. And so that's why they could not identify the crisis. Whereas post-Keynesians, we have a model that looks at, you know, relevant um, elements of, of real-world economies. And then what we saw, we saw this, you know, housing bubble um, getting larger and larger. We saw um, people getting more and more into debt and banks sort of behaving badly. And we concluded from those things, wait a second, these things can't, they don't add up and they certainly are not sustainable. So something's got to give. And in 2007, 2008, something did give. And we, you know, as they say that, the rest is history, unfortunately. Precisely. And for clarity, the difference seems to be that private debt is taken into account as a factor. Yes. So we've got to be careful when we talk about debt because, um, um, you know, there, there is debt that is necessary <clears throat> for the system to work. Uh, companies have to go into debt um, in order to produce and invest and hire workers and all of that. But households is quite another story. And there is certainly a good, um, good debt for households as well. Debt for education, debt for a house, you know, things like that. But what happened is this private debt has been increasing more and more and more. And that was unsustainable. There is a limit where private debt, public debt is something different, but pop, private debt is unsustainable. And that's where, um, that's where uh, some economists like Steve Keen, um, who places a lot of emphasis on debt, and, and so do a lot of other people, of course, um, were saying, you know, something is coming down the, the, the pipeline. And even today, the debt levels are still quite alarming. In Canada, where I am, uh, Canadians are amongst the worst 
uh, indebted consumers, workers in the world. And the debt level keeps going up. And that's alarming <clears throat> because I'm, I'm teaching. And it's funny we're doing this now because just this week I was doing debt, private debt levels in my, in my macro class. And I was telling students that eventually, we don't know when, but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, interest rates are going to start going up. And when interest rates go up, with household debt being so high, that's another potential source of crisis right around the corner. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that's... For those with adjustable rate mortgages, or for sure, everyone. but, you know, I mean, whenever anyone who has mortgages will have to renegotiate those mortgages at a much higher rate, hmm. um, right. they're going to suffer. And then if they have credit card debt on top of that, and tuition debt and all of those other debts, uh, they won't be able to to uh, to service all that debt, right? To pay down that debt, and it's going to create a big problems in the future. And now, regarding the housing crisis, some of the economists I know on the right, from Austrian and libertarian schools, place the blame squarely on the shoulders of the Federal Reserve and upon easy money policies. What would you say to them? Well. I've heard that argument many times and I've participated in some, you know, roundtable discussions on that. And, um, you know, for me, that's just as a ridiculous statement as uh, saying uh, the world is flat. Um, the truth of the, the truth of the, the, the matter is, um, you know, People get into debt not because interest rates are low, but because there's no regulatory, uh, credible re regulatory system in place. You know, we should not let people get into debt uh, that high. You know, uh, when you have banks pushing onto, uh, you know, the whole subprime, uh, we should not allow that to happen. Um, so, in other words, we should put regulations on firms and on households with respect to debt levels and their ability to borrow. You know, I can still go, my bank is still pushing on to me massive debts. They're still pushing there. They want to raise my credit limit. They want to get a credit <laughs> card. They want to give me more, you know, uh, debt. For, and they're just pushing it on to me. And I just, and I'm resisting. But um, what about the person who, you know, has poor impulse control. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, it does come down to that, but, you know, I mean, the the person who, you know, does want to have a bigger TV because the Joneses have a bigger TV or a newer car or anything like that, and they're just waiting for an excuse to do so, and then when the banks give you the credit or when the stores give you credit, you know, they just, they they just, they just do it. So it's not because interest rates are low. It's because we just let um, credit go wild. And uh, we have to have better regulations as opposed to, you know, I'm in favor of keeping interest rates very low uh, and, and just leaving it there. Mm. Um, I don't believe in sort of um, counter cyclical uh, 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 policies, you know, uh, or, you know, using interest rates to regulate cycles. I'm not in favor of that. It's not the purpose of, of, of interest rates. You keep interest rates low and then you sort of regulate the economy around it. And what you're proposing sounds 
fairly straightforward to implement. You would take whatever person owns their total assets and then figure out what they can borrow. You know, reasonably. Yeah, I mean, look, these equations already exist. When you buy a house, <laughs> the bank will uh, sit down with you and figure things out. They may not be honest about it, but you know, it's just a question of. Um, you know, the idea that you can buy a house with zero down payment, uh, the idea that um, banks are allowed to do subprime, and it's not only subprime, right? They're, they're, it's predatory lending as well, which should be completely outlawed. Um, you know, and we can, you know, if you can just, if, if you get a, a hairdresser, a taxi driver, and some policy people together, you know, the hairdressers and the, and the taxi drivers can actually come up with some good policies on their own, you know, as opposed to um, bankers who the only thing they want to do is, is just give you credit without, you know, without, without any consequences to them. Now, when you mentioned keeping interest rates permanently low, that's something you touched on in the lecture I was listening to yeah. last night. Yeah. And I was curious about your opinion of monetary policy now, because that was taken a couple of years ago. You know, monetary policy now is what it should be always. Let's leave interest rates at 1%. I think in the United States it's 0.25, is it? So It is low. Yeah, yeah, I think it's 0.25. <laughs> um, you know, let's leave, them at, uh, let's leave them at 1%, for example. And... Um, you know, I, I say that in real interest rates should be equal to the growth rate of uh, labor productivity. But, you know, for the sake of the argument, let's just keep them low at around 1%. And um, because what happens when you start using interest rates to sort of regulate the cycle, right, the idea that when inflation creeps up, you increase interest rates in order to bring inflation down. The problem is that's actually not how the economy works. And what usually happens is a central bank will increase interest rates, right? Because they have an inflation target, let's say, of about 2%. And um, they will increase interest rates because inflation is at 3 And then they're going to wait and they go, well, wait a second. Inflation is not coming down because they think, it should be coming down if they raise interest rates. They raise interest rates again and they wait. Inflation is not coming down. They raise interest rates again and they raise it again. They'll, they'll raise it five, six, seven, eight times. And eventually what's going to happen is you are going to crash the economy. And then when the economy crashes, then inflation comes down. I tell my students this is sort of like using a sledgehammer to kill a fly on the table. You'll kill the fly, but you'll also crash the table. Right. And then you'll have to build the table back up instead of just using a fly swatter. So for me, that's what monetary policy is. Um, and the reason is that's become so popular is because there's just this disdain of fiscal policy in the literature. Right. People are just so afraid of using fiscal policy. When in reality, monetary policy is not efficient to regulate cycle cycles. And um, so because of that. Uh, interest rates should be kept low. For me, interest rates, is a, it's an income distributive variable. So let's keep them low, and then let's fall back on fiscal policy to, to regulate cycles. You know, expansionary fiscal policy when uh, you're in a recession and, and more restrictive ones when you're in a boom. 
Now, when you're talking about fiscal policy, you mean things like public works, like... Infrastructure spending, absolutely. And, you know, there are also some um, sort of um, uh, uh, built-in mechanisms, right? Uh, for example, you know, unemployment insurance or welfare payments or those sites, those sort of things, which have actually been sort of cut back in the last 20 years so that these mechanisms actually have lost their efficiencies. But if you, you know, um, put money back into unemployment insurance and back into welfare and back into sort of these sort of um, automatic mechanisms, that's going to go a great way of, of, of helping. And then, of course, I do believe in public investments. You know, we have crumbling infrastructure, uh, roads, healthcare, um, education, and we can think of a, other sort of public infrastructure uh, spending. But these things are vital, are vital, and um, are vital for, for not only today, but for also for generations to come. We have electrical grids that are falling apart, inadequate um, sewage, inadequate. You know, all of these things have to be modernized, and it costs money, it creates jobs, but uh, government should not be afraid to, uh, to do that. I think it sounds wonderful in theory. My concern is implementing them, mm -hmm. because government has a way of being inefficient, or can be anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that's sort of a horse of a different color, but it is part of the a part of the, the 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 equation, I guess. You know, but let's not let's not believe that um, the private sector is more efficient either, right? Well, there right. are there are large, there are big inefficiencies in the private sector. I think inefficiencies goes with um, you know large entities, large corporations, <laughs> large government. So it's not something that is only akin to, to, to governments. Now, that being said, um, you know, I mean, um, there might be inefficiencies. I don't think they're all that, uh, that much. I think, I think what you might call inefficiencies is sort of uh, elected officials using public funds for, to benefit their own constituents or something. But... You know, I mean, that has to do with um, with uh, with cronyism, and, and and that certainly exists. But it does not mean that fiscal policy is uh, inefficient in in uh, in helping the economy along. And you know, I mean, if a government decides to upgrade uh, uh, electrical grids and sewage and and roads and bridges, you know, they're going to get done. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and you know, that's the end. Uh, the end game, right? It, these things have got to be undertaken. Right. For better or worse, it has to be done. And to quote Bernard Mandeville many years back, private vice makes public virtue. Ah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> everyone has to make money, and a little bit of nepotism is inevitable, whether you're in the private sector or the public well, one. Well, the private sector, yeah. I mean, the private sector has... Just as much, or if not more, cronyism and nepotism and all of that, of course. Yes. So, from your perspective, what exactly is inflation? And should we be concerned about it at all at well, this point? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, there's two questions there. Should we be um, 
concerned about it, period, and should we should we be concerned about it at this at this point? You sort of added that at the end, but these are really <laughs> questions. Um, I mean, inflation is just, uh, you know, a general increase in, 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 in the prices. And um, should we be concerned about it? Look, I'm not that concerned about um, inflation. There are studies that have shown that inflation is really not a problem until it gets um, fairly high, like in the 15%. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it becomes a political problem um, more than anything else. And I think there's also a problem of distribution, right? When inflation uh, goes up, lenders, uh, the value of debt goes down. And if you're a lender, um, you see the value, the real value of your lending going down. And so there's a political economy in this uh, argument in the sense that those people, banks and all, they don't like that. So they will pressure governments and convince governments that inflation is a problem. Whereas, you know, people who are in debt, they see the real value of their debt going down. So in that sense, you know, inflation can be a good thing. It's a distributive uh, issue and it distributes, um, you know, um, value from from uh, debt uh, people, banks to, let's say, to, to debt holders. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm not particularly um, concerned about inflation you know, in Canada, in the United States, on a, in a general sense, um, I'm more concerned about unemployment. Now, if I were a central banker and I am concerned about inflation, uh, or if I worked for a central banker, I would tell them inflation is not a problem right now, and it doesn't seem to be a problem anytime soon. Um, it doesn't seem, you know, if you look at, um, you know, wage pressures, if you look at uh, uh, things that might contribute to higher prices in the private sector, there just doesn't seem to be any pressures there. And uh, real wages are flat. Growth of real wages is flat. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be any pressures on inflation. And that's essentially why you have this sort of flat-lined inflation for the last several years. And I think, you know, there's no reason to think it's, it's, it's going to start going up. So that means, for me, that means that Interest rates are likely to remain low for quite quite a while. I don't see mm. interest rates going up. You know, let's let's do this podcast again in two, late 2016 because I don't see interest rates going up before the end of 2016 and even beyond that. Because if we're heading towards another sort of world um, world economic crisis in the next year or so, then you're talking about indefinitely keeping interest rates low for for time to come. Well, you've brought up a few things I would like to talk about in more depth. Let's start with unemployment. Now, for the past five years or so, I've seen articles regularly about the shift from manual labor to more skilled labor, the loss of jobs for people who have no skills or formal education. And what's concerning is that many of them do not have the means or maybe the ability to acquire those skills. What is to be done here? Well, first of all, there is um first of all, let's get something clear. You know, unemployment rates have been coming down and you know, I mean I prefer they go down than up, of course. But if you look at labor participation, um that's still not 
where it was before the crisis. So let's not think that the unemployment uh, or the labor market is is suddenly uh, gaining uh, momentum here, right? Right. I mean, it's something to, you know, like I said, I'd rather the unemployment rate go down, but unemployment rates going down does not necessarily mean, you know, everything's great. Sure. So you have to take it with, you know, you've got to look at labor participation and other things. Um, Also, there seems to be sort of this, this belief that if only people had skills, they could get jobs. Well, you know, and I guess that's what you were hinting at. You know, I just don't think it works like that. You see governments paying, for, in Canada anyways, governments paying for people to get, um, to get skilled. And, uh, you know, thinking that once they get these new skills or these um, freshen up their skills, they'll get jobs. Um, it, that's not the way it works. The governor of the central bank just a few weeks ago said that, you know, in order to resolve youth unemployment, which in Canada is at 13.5%, twice the national average, um, more than twice the national average, they should volunteer in the private sector and work for free because they'll get all these skills. Mm -hmm. And when jobs come along, then they'll be able to, you know, to get jobs easier, easily. Um, you know, I mean, it's not because, you, you know, what creates jobs a company actually hiring? That's what mm-hmm. creates jobs. And a lot of companies will actually form you. So even if you don't have the necessary skills, you know, they'll train you. So let's get companies to, to, to hire people instead of just putting the emphasis on skills. Let's create jobs at the same time. And there, that's where I think uh, the government has a role to play. It's clear that the private sector just is not able to do it on its own. So let's find a way of, of, of making sure the private sector or the public sector creates jobs first. And, you know, if you want to talk about skilling, that's fine, too. But let's talk about job creation as well. I, I do want to clarify for everyone. I am not that much of an optimist. I am not Dr. Pangloss here. I, I don't think that skills will guarantee you a job, not at all. But what I'm saying is that steadily skills are becoming a requisite for jobs, for many jobs, for an increasing number of them. It's only becoming a, requ- a requisite because jobs are scarce. Right. It's just a way for companies sort of to, um, you know, eliminate a bunch of applicants. There's a lot of applicants out there and it's just a way for them sort of to to skim through the pool of applicants. Um, I guarantee if unemployment uh, rate fell to four percent and three percent like it used to, you know, the emphasis on skills would go out the window. Uh, They'd be happy to just hire anybody and then train them. Right. Unless you're applying, say, for a neurosurgery position. Of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. But I'm sure many neuroscientists would probably make better economists than many of my colleagues on the uh, in the mainstream. I just want to say that. <laughs> well, that will make a couple friends of mine very happy. <laughs> or in that area of research. Uh, well, that also 
reminds me of the very large cash stores that companies like Apple are currently sitting on mm. that are not being mobilized. And that goes back to what we were talking about with large institutions becoming sluggish or ineffective. Yes, uh, we have the same problem in Canada. And um, look, I, I, I've got to say, I can't blame those uh, those stores. Let me say, let me tell you why. You know, if you're a corporation and you're looking to invest or to hire people, you invest because you actually expect, right? You buy machines. That's what an investment is, a capital good. You buy a machine because you actually think the level of effective demand in the future will be going up in a permanent way, right? You add machines, and I'm not talking about replacing old machines, but, you know, adding, uh, increasing your capital stock. You do so because you think you'll be able to sell more goods. Yeah, so I can't really blame these companies because if you invest, if you add to your capital stock, it's because you think that the level of effective demand in the future will be increased permanently, right? You're not going to add a machine in order to use it for six months, right? You want to use it, you know, permanently. Um, if you want to hire more workers, it's, to re it's, it's in response to higher levels of effective demand. If you look around, you know, we're sort of in this doldrum situation where, you know, you don't know if demand will be increased next year. It's a whole emphasis post-Keynesians have on uncertainty, and it's clearly at work here. You know, if you're going to produce more, who's going to buy your goods? You don't know. Mm -hmm. So... Why would a company produce more or invest more in this sort of situation? You have, you know, growth at 2%, which is nothing. Um, so, you know, you see around you consumers being overly indebted. So they're going to have to deal with that in the future, which means reduced consumption. Uh, governments are not spending. They're, you know, uh, um, they're uh, they are, they're applying austerity measures. So you know where is the growth in demand going to come from? So if you're a if I were a private sector uh, company, I would say it's not worth it for me to start investing right now. Sure. On the other hand, a company like Google has bought a few very speculative ventures like Calico, which may not pay off for them in the next five years or ten years, but could be a great thing in well, 20 and that's why google is you know i mean i'm, I'm not defending google but you know <laughs> it's no but it's a company that takes risks and 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 all of that and, and it's looking at 15 years down the road right mm -hmm. but you know you mentioned apple apple has increasing uh, uh competition uh from samsung and other products um so you know it's it's future sort of uncertain um but, you know, yeah, generally, I think there's just this massive amount of uncertainty out there um, from the private sector. And it's just not a very attractive time to start investing or hiring people. Then we have austerity measures. Why do those not work? What is so awful about well, them? Well, because... Because they make sense from an ordinary 
no. common sense perspective. They, no, 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 no. They make sense. Maybe, maybe they make sense from a microeconomic perspective. Maybe. I don't know, right? I mean, it's the idea right. that you're sort of applying a microeconomic conception to the state. You know, the mm-hmm. government is not a household. I accept that I cannot live beyond my means. Um, you know, if I have debt, I have to pay it. I have no way of servicing it. I might have to get a second job. That's the way I deal with it. But the government is, is, is something quite different. Um, and um, um, when it spends, it actually can um, create um, a lot of uh, jobs and, 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 and help the private sector. And, it, you know, when the government spends a lot, it can help the private sector invest. So there's actually sort of a causal relationship here that when government spending goes up, investment can go up. And, um, and that creates more jobs, more people being, paying debt, uh, paying taxes. And then that's actually a way of, of reducing its, 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 its uh, deficits. When I spend money, I'm not exactly getting anything, anything back to reduce my deficit. So, but the state can. And um, what happens with austerity is, you know, it, it goes back to the first question you asked me, what is post-Keynesian? Theory. Another crucial element of post-Keynesian theory, in addition to uncertainty, is the idea that effective demand is really what drives uh, cycles. So when effective demand goes up, that leads to uh, growth and more growth and, you know, all of that kind of dynamic. But when government starts cutting back, which is austerity, it's actually taking money or spending uh, income out of the system. And so to go back to what we just discussed about private sector, when governments are not spending and they're taking income out, well, the private sector is looking around and saying, income is coming out of the system. I'm not going to be spending either. So you have government cutting back. You have private sector cutting back. You have households who are so indebted that they're going to start to have to cut back eventually. And, um, you know, for me, that just spells disaster. Exactly. And there are those who think it's necessary for the economy to adjust to a stable state again. But... It required, I mean, it's difficult to explain to them that the macroeconomy is not the same as a household or as a business, and I'm not sure if we'll ever be successful in that endeavor. We probably will reach some sort of technological utopia before that happens. Yeah, I mean, on that, you know, I think that was probably the most brilliant piece of PR from the right, the idea that they succeeded in convincing the population that the government cannot live without, uh, beyond its means. I remember in Canada back in the uh, mid-1980s, we had a finance minister called Dan Mazankowski who um, stood up in the House of Commons when he delivered the, the, the budget. I remember he took a credit card out of his wallet and he kind of raised it. And he says, I can't live with my credit card being maxed out all the time and neither can the state. And I thought, you know, that was really kind of brilliant. It's complete hogwash. But it was a brilliant piece of PR, and people bought into it. And, um, 
And that's what we and 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 those who are critical uh, of that have never been able to properly address that argument in a way that people believed us. It's a tough sell. What it can is. I say? You know, and people always have to say, "Well, my taxes are paying for it. My taxes are going up. I mean, my taxes, my taxes, my taxes." But you know, people forget that, you know they get something out of taxes. You know, when I start explaining to people, okay, let's just have taxes at 10%. That's easy to do. Let's just reduce taxes to 10%. No problem. Then, you know, who, who's going to pay for the education of your kids and who's going to pay for the new bridge or, 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 uh, or, I mean, there's a reason I think where, why we have dams bursting, uh, bridges collapsing, potholes or sinking cars or or you know there's a reason why we have that is because governments are cutting back everywhere and and these things are being neglected it goes to infrastructure again we have our even infrastructure crumbling around us uh, but that's okay as long as we pay lesser taxes hmm. so that's what people are saying and they don't realize that they get something um when they pay taxes. Well, the mentality is, I have mine, so forget all of you. <laughs> yeah, no, but even then, That's, uh, you don't get yours because, you know, in Canada, we have, we, in the last couple of years, we had tainted food. And we have tainted food mm -hmm. all the time, tainted water, tainted food. That's because, you know, the governments are not hiring um, uh, are not hiring inspectors as many. They fire them because of austerity. So less people inspecting plants, less people inspecting uh, water supplies. And so what happens? Uh, people get sick, they die because they're infected with uh, bad water, bad meats, bad, um, bad everything, bad, you know. And, uh, and so people are not even getting something uh, when uh, they're not even getting their own when lower taxes. They believe they're getting they their own. They believe they are, but, but, but they're not. Um, and then, you know, when you explain it to, the, to, to, to people like that, then they start, oh, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it, you know? But it's a hard sell. Which is strange because Canada, at least here in the States, is usually depicted as this large government, nearly totalitarian state. Well, and I wasn't aware that there was a right in Canada. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you this. I'm not talking in terms of the population here, but I'm talking in terms of our government. Our government is way more to the right than the U.S. government. Hmm. Way more, way more. And not only that, we have a government at the federal level, level under Stephen Harper, which is um, I, ideologically very right, you know, and um, and that is very scary, you know. Well, now uh, I think we've all learned something here in the I states. Tell you that much. You know, there was an article in the um, in the Washington. Posts. I think it was. I can't remember. Uh, not too long ago, a few months ago, saying why Canada is uh, has become the darling of the right wing in the United States. You know. Oh. So this is uh, this is a new development. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> hey, I, I, you probably have a lot of Canadians wishing uh, to be living in the United States right now. Well, since we are veering a little bit <coughs> off topic, what do you think of modern monetary theory? Um, I have no comment. Let's go on to the other <laughs> No comment. <laughs> no okay. comment. No comment. And I think that should, uh, that, that should tell you a lot. I have no comments. Tell us a little bit about Roke, oh, the oh. journal, yeah. oh, that which happy. you are the editor. Yeah, that I'm happy. Um, the review of Keynesian economics, um, I'll tell you, it started uh, back in October 2011. That's when we signed the contract. Um, you know, a little bit before that, um, I had had conversations with uh, Paul Davidson, where Paul was the founding editor of the Journal of Post, uh, Journal of Post Keynesian Economics. And, um, you know, just a little anecdote. The Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics originally was supposed to be called the Journal of Keynesian Economics until someone pointed out that the acronym would be JOKE. <laughs> and so it became the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics. Anyways, and I was talking to Paul probably over the summer or something, and he mentioned how he wanted to move the journal from where it was at Emmy Sharp and look for a new publisher. And I told him, I said, well, let me contact Elgar. And I contacted Elgar, and by then, Elgar did not have any journals in economics. It had a couple of, I think, medical or something like that journals. And when I told them that, they jumped on the idea. They really wanted the journal. So I told this to, to, to Paul, and um, unfortunately, it couldn't happen because of legal issues with, with uh, Sharp and everything, contracts and all. So that fell through. At which point, uh, the editors at uh, the publishers at uh, Elgar just asked me if I wanted to start my journal. And I said yes. And I jumped on it. And then I asked my colleague, Matthias Vernengo. Now, Matthias and I, 15 years ago, uh, something like that, um, you know, yeah, a long time ago, we had talked about starting a journal together. And, uh, you know, we never did. We were quite young and early in our careers back then. And we, we never did. But when this opportunity came along, I remembered that and I contacted him right away. And he said, yes, absolutely, right away. And then uh, Tom Pally joined us. And, um, and since then, we've been working really extremely well together. The journal has really caught on. We, uh, we publish four times a year. We publish, you know, about eight papers, a journal, and some book reviews. Um, the response has been amazing. Um, we get some great manuscripts. We get some, uh, we also sponsor quite a number of co uh, conferences around the world. Uh, one in um, Portugal in April. Uh, one in Turkey in September, one in France, in Grenoble in December. So we sponsor quite a few conferences. And um, it's just been quite phenomenal. And um, uh, they, uh, we have a great time, uh, great time doing it. It's, it's, uh, it's great. You know, it's great because we're in a position where, you know, um, 
we can try to influence the uh, the debates. Uh, we just published something with Steve Keen. You mentioned Steve Keen. We published a paper of his uh, recently, which was very well received, and we published. I read it. You read it, and mm-hmm. uh, did you read? Did you read the reply by Lavoie? I did not. The reply by Lavoie. Well, there are two issues, um, two articles in every issue that's free, so people can go to the. Um, if you Google Roke R O K E Roke Elgar, it'll come up, and every issue has two free articles, and. Um, Steve's article and Mark Lavois's reply to Steve Key um, are free. And Steve actually has a reply to his critics coming up in an article soon. And, um, and uh, yeah, no, Rogue is absolutely fantastic fun. We have a great time doing it. And uh, we're very, uh, uh, you know, we're just very happy that it has been so well received. And so quickly, too, you know. What are the ultimate goals of the journal and of INET, which we'll talk about a little bit later? Well, you know, I hope to be around for many years with the journal and uh, the ultimate goal of the journal. We have a couple of things that we're talking about now. We're talking, we've secured the name. um, We want to create a prize for um, um, young people. uh, for PhD students. Uh, I've been talking to Robert Skidelsky about this. We've secured no. the name, um, the John Maynard Keynes Prize. And uh, that's what it would be called. And it would be, um, we'd have a contest every year. So we'd have a call for papers for PhDs uh, to submit a paper. Then we'd have a blue pa- a blue ribbon panel of very distinguished scholars. Um, fi- uh, you know, agreeing on the best paper and then publishing that paper and then giving an award, a monetary award to, uh, to the winner. So that's something that's in the works. Um, and, um, you know, uh, hopefully uh, um, we have quite a few, you know, we have symposiums coming on fiscal multipliers and fiscal policy on the Europe. I'm writing a paper with Steve Keen saying that, you know, we should just eliminate the euro, uh, get rid of the euro. Um, But there's going to be a mini symposium on that. We have mini symposiums on, uh, you know, how to teach post-Keynesian economics we have in in university. So we have quite a few, um, you know, symposiums planned uh, in uh, uh, the next two, three years. So that's quite exciting. How do you and some of your colleagues view the multiplier? Because there is a very large literature about this fairly simple concept, a large and technical literature. Yeah. For me, I have actually something quite different, um, a very different approach. And um, this is uh, the basis for the symposium, really. The symposium, you know, it's going to have people like Engelbert Stockhammer, Edward Nell, Willy Semler, myself. It's going to have um, um, Mark Setterfield. And I'm going to be inviting uh, one or two mainstream people to participate as well in order to have sort of a debate on it. You'll have them outnumbered for a change. (laughs) (laughs) Great news. But, um, you know, there's a whole literature now, uh, a very new literature called... 
um, regime-dependent multipliers, the idea that the multiplier changes value through the cycle. And it's actually something I wrote about in 2008. Um, I was actually one of the first people to do so. Um, But um, I think, for me, the value of the multiplier is linked to the banking system. Um, Could you elaborate? Well, you know, for example, um, I think that being from the post-Keynesian or uh, circuitist tradition, I place banks, as did Keynes, for example, at the very heart of uh, the analysis of production and growth. So for a company to, to, to produce, you know, it has to get into debt. We talked about debt before. And debt comes largely from banks. And um, if banks are not willing to lend, uh, then you have a problem. You have a potential crisis. And so when the, fiscal, when, 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 when the federal government spends money, it injects money and the recipients are the, is the private sector. The recipients are the private sector, firms, for example. And so if they receive payments, in order, it, it, it's technical, but for the multiplier to take flight, um, you have to have the participation of the banking system. Mm. And so for me, the idea of, of uh, saving the banking system in 2009 was a good idea. They didn't do it right, but it had to be done. Um, and there, there were better ways of doing it, which I won't get into, um, but, um, but you had to, because if you had your banking system collapsing, then that just that spells disaster for the economy. And the reason is, I think, is because the, the multiplier works through the banking system. I'll send you my paper when it's done. Gladly. And that is a very technical subject. It is. It, not easy to summarize in a couple minutes. Yeah, yeah. Going back to policy and to theory, how exactly or what role does the environment and pollution play in your thought? You know, I haven't. I'm. I, I um. I don't. I don't write on it for sure. I don't think much about it either. Um, it's not to say that I'm not concerned about it, but I do. You know, I'm one of those technologists. I guess I believe technology will eventually resolve the problems of the environment. I, you know, I really do. I really do. No, it's not an unfounded belief. It's not silly by any means. No, no, it's not. And. I can say that I don't, I'm not a big fan of this whole sort of degrowth literature um, that's out there on the sort of the left environmentalist. Um, you know, I don't think the solution is to, you know, these people are saying that we have to put an end to growth, to economic growth, because it's hurting the, the, the environment. I don't think they're incompatible. And I think, uh, you know, innovations and technologies, you know, we, 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 we can think of many, many examples where technology had a positive effect on the environment. Uh, yes. You know, but, um, but it's not something I do, it's not something I write on, but it's not something that's uh, absent from my, 
from my thinking, but I just don't write in, on it. And occasionally, for instance, McDonald's using biodiesel fuels for the cost, because gas was so expensive when they began it. That's an example of private enterprise doing something environmentally responsible for their own gain. Yes, and you know, and 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 you're probably right there. You know, I mean, um, you know, there will be a time. You know, but there's also public pressure, right, with environmental issues. So, you know, I think McDonald did this also from a PR uh, perspective as well. Oh, of course. But but you know, but yeah, I mean, technology will be there in order to, you know, and it's probably not going to answer all the the problems, but I think it's going to go a long way to answering many of them. Which was something that I was about to get into when we were discussing unemployment, when eventually so many processes are completely automated, what happens in the long run, besides all of us being dead? Yeah. Always have to, always have to throw in that joke. Yeah, to refer to Keynes. <laughs> but, you know, there's definitely some, some labor displacement going on with new technologies and it's just so funny because I was taking the streetcar in Toronto last night and I was saying, you know, I can see in 10 years streetcars having no drivers, you know, uh, so that's going to be displacing as well. But, you know, I mean, there's always, you know, mar labor markets are very dynamic. There's always new opportunities being created um I think if you look at the evolution, the economic history of the last 150 years, but that's just a very, that's, that's a fact of, of, of our economies that some industries peter out and others grow and others emerge. Look at all the jobs created by Google and by Apple and by, you know, um, Microsoft. Um, so, there are jobs being displaced. There are other jobs being uh, created, and that is certainly just the dynamics of labor markets and of innovations. And but the vast majority of the jobs created by those three companies all require a great deal of technical finesse. They, you know, they certainly do. But, you know, there's also um, uh, many jobs, you know, all the restaurants and all the hotels around those companies that don't. And so they do create jobs for uh, people that don't have those skills. But then you have to think of the quality of those jobs in terms of how much you're working and how much you're being paid, which usually isn't very much. Yeah, well then let's make sure we have you know legislation that, that pays well and you know uh, that creates jobs with good benefits and you know, I mean, there's also a political dimension to, to, to this, right? We have to have governments that will make sure that these jobs have good benefits and all of that. Um, and, you know, higher minimum wages and, or living wages. Um, but no, I mean, you're right. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm not a labor economist and uh, I will defer to, to, to my colleagues who are specialists on there. But, you know, I mean, uh, through history, there have been Industries that have been eliminated and replaced by other ones, and and they, many, you know, I mean, so. 
So that is another thing that goes into the analysis of unemployment is if a person is fully employed, how well they're being paid. So I sometimes feel those statistics can be very misleading. For instance, here in the States, and particularly Florida, which is an exceptionally regressive state for labor, one of the worst, frequently people are employed for just under full-time. So they don't receive any of the benefits, but they do all of the work. No, and you're right. When I said that... uh when unemployment rate is coming down, that's not the end of the story. You do have to look at permanent jobs versus part-time jobs. You know, uh, there's also disguised unemployment. People who are super qualified, just taking a job, a menial job to, to make ends meet. You're right. We have to look at all of that. Absolutely. 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 Uh, and, yeah. And I know we're jumping around a bit. Actually, quite a bit, but that's all right. I have faith in anyone who downloads this podcast. Now, what do you think about taxes, the best sorts of taxes? Because I spoke with a Georgist a couple nights ago on this issue, and as you know, they are very much in favor of the land value tax. Exclusively, they want to abolish all others. Well, you know, I think what we should have is we have we should have a very progressive income tax and we should have a wealth tax as well you know i mean we have a problem with income inequality in the in the in the u.s you know the u.s being one of the most unequal countries in the world um you know we have to uh have a, a more aggressive income tax, and certainly a very aggressive wealth tax. Now, two questions. With the income tax, how exactly would we make it more progressive by, say, removing loopholes that are frequently used? No, you have higher marginal tax rates and higher incomes. But is there still some concern of wealthy people shifting their funds oh, to other countries? Sure, or no, 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 yes, yes. I'm not excluding, of course, um, you know, uh, those loopholes, for example, offshore accounts, which are illegal, right? Um, no, 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 absolutely. And I'll tell you something. In Canada, Revenue Canada has actually said that they have a list of people with offshore accounts, but they just don't seem to be going after them. Um, surprise, surprise. Yes. So, you know, um, we have to be able to uh, make sure that these offshore accounts are closed, and then we have uh, need to have more progressive taxes. And what about a sales tax? Well, you know... I'm not completely opposed to a sales tax, but I do think that in the very least, you should have quite a number of things that are not taxable. Food, right. um, you know. Non-essential goods, luxury items. Yeah, luxury item. You know, I mean, uh, the big 40-foot sailboat should have a 25% sales tax on it. You know, I'm just giving you a number. Um, but when the sales boat luxury sales boat has the same tax as baby food, uh, which in Canada is 13.5%. 
13, I think it's 13, uh, 13%. Uh, that's a problem. That is high. Yeah, 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 it is high. And, um, you know, you should uh, eliminate food, you should eliminate clothing, you should eliminate, or or certain clothing, you know, um, uh, maybe books, uh, you know, things like that. And this all brings up Thomas Piketty, mm-hmm. in my mind, which is which was his recommendation, which I felt was a bit of a letdown, because there was this great build-up in the book, this big, thick book, and then he says... Ah, we need more progressive taxes. I don't know what I was expecting. Something more arcane, something more mind-blowing. But what did you think of the book? Has this affected your thought? Look, the book, I'm giving a talk tomorrow, actually, on the book. And, um, you know, at first I was very critical of the book because Piketty is is a very neoclassical guy. And, um, and so, you know, that kind of, you know, I never quite understood why, you know, it sold 600,000 copies, that book to date. Um, so I never quite understood why. But I think that Piketty has done something that nobody on the left has been able to do for the last hundred years. And that's turned income inequality into a national conversation. But it was becoming one before the book came out. It was building up. It was building up. You're right. You know, there was the Occupy New York and, and, and those Occupy movements. And people had been talking about it. You're absolutely right. And in that sense, the book was all about timing. But the book gave, you know empirical and not theoretical because there's a lot of theory in there that I don't agree with, but at least empirical support to the notion of inequality, which people welcomed. And in that sense, the data on the book, in the book itself, is what's the most important thing. Everything else in the book, you can just forget about it. But it's a wealth, pardon the pun, a wealth of data. Uh, in the book that I think is useful and that is where the... And Piketty has made the data available uh, and that's really great of him. And I think that that's where, um, that's where the strength of the book lies. And, you know, um, you know the, the, the book does something that we're, we haven't been able to do. So and that's, uh, in that sense, it, you know, it accomplished a lot. And there's a lot of parallels between Piketty and Keynes. Um, oh, I'm not sure if I would even compare them. <laughs> not, no, they are. You know, Keynes, Keynes was not a very Keynesian economist, right? <laughs> Keynes, had, Keynes had a lot of neoclassical baggage. Keynes describes himself as... Um, his book, The General Theory, is a long struggle of escape from the habitual modes of thought which ramify in every corner of, my, of our minds. Um, Keynes was struggling to get away from neoclassical economics and didn't quite succeed uh, in doing so. And I think that Piketty also has that struggle um, within himself, um, you know, because he, 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 he's sort of very progressive uh, 
mm-hmm. in that sense, you know, tackling income inequality, no one tackles income inequality. Yeah, but you know, if you're on, you, if you're in, you know, if you're within the mainstream, but he does so. So I think there's a struggle there, and also, like Keynes, he uh, he wants to sort of euthanize the rent here by having high taxes on wealth and you know income and stuff. So let's, you know, there are some parallels with Keynes there. Sure. On the other hand, Piketty has access to so, so many new materials, whereas Keynes was working with Pigot, Marshall, and the guys who came before them, and that was about it. I mean, Keynes was legitimately struggling because Keynesian economics didn't exist at the time. Whereas Piketty seems willfully ignorant. (laughs) In that regard, and like you said, he's still very much a neoclassicist. Yeah, he is, and that's one of the reasons why the books seem kind of dull and bland and one-dimensional to me. Yeah, just a bunch of data. Yeah, and I think that that actually Tom Pally makes the argument that that's probably what the reason why the book was so well received is because he was neoclassical. You mm. know, there seems to be this legitimacy when you're neoclassical that when you speak of something, you're speaking from a pulpit of legitimacy. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure that that has certainly something to do with it because if, if Jamie Galbraith or someone on the left speaks of inequality, they're Marxist. You can't label Piketty a Marxist. And so, a lot of people have tried, though. Oh, a lot of people have tried because <laughs> that's what they do, right? But, um, but yeah, no, I see... But yeah, no, I mean, Piketty, I think it's because Piketty, I think, let's see what Piketty does in the next five years when he is exposed to people like Jamie Galbraith and and others on the left. Um, you know, Piketty was at the New School not too long ago. Um, so he's he's a guy who's obviously very willing to talk to people on the left. So let's see how his views evolve. And maybe I'm completely wrong. And let's revisit this in five years. But, you know, I think that he might evolve. Maybe he'll attend one of your conferences and you'll bring him into the fold. Well, I'm actually trying to put something together. So I'll let you know if I'm (laughs) successful. If you're looking for a book to read on Keynes, there's quite a good one out there also, which Maria Christine Marcuso likes a lot. It's by Gilles Dostaler, D-O-S-T-A-L-E-R. Gilles, I knew very well, and he's passed away the last couple of years. But the book is called Keynes and His Battles. And it's actually quite good. And in some respect, I would say probably even a bit better than Skidelsky's book. I, I can't even remember seeing that book on Amazon. And I've done a search for the keyword... I read Hyman Minsky's Keynes. Well, Hyman Minsky should not be read, period. (laughs) I am curious, though, about how you feel about Hyman Minsky, because I know Steve Keen is a fan. Yes. Big fan. Yes. Well, you know, one thing that you have to keep in mind with uh, Minsky... um, is, you know, I mean, this past crisis was not a Minsky crisis, right? So I'm not sure why everyone jumped on Minsky during the, you know, during, during the financial crisis. Um, but, um, 
you know, Minsky was a uh, started off in loanable funds. So he was a very, very sort of neoclassical guy when he started out in 1957. Uh, he's got a couple of articles in the American Economic Review and uh, I, think, I think it's a quarterly review of economics, which are very sort of loanable funds. And um, that's where his idea for financial instability hypothesis comes from. And uh, you can see the seeds in those articles already germaining. And so, you know, for me... He, he, uh, I'm not a big fan of. of, of I, I could hear the contempt in yeah. your voice when you said Minsky. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a big fan of Minsky, <laughs> but uh, uh, some people have rehabilitated him into a Keynesian, and I think that's great. But um, okay, good for them. His his prose is very turgid, and I can usually read fairly technical tracks, but I was definitely lost in pieces. Yeah, The man did seem to have a deep, or at least a very good understanding of the vocabulary of banking. Because I had to look yeah, up yeah. quite a few of the terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should move on to the coming economic crisis that I have read about on your wall that you have mentioned here. Oh, yes, okay. Yeah. I wrote a a column for the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, on um, called "On the Verge of an of Another World Economic Crisis," and um, it was based on um, well, you know, I've been saying this for a few years now, but there was a paper that or a commentary that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago by the by the Eugene Levy. Uh, people involved with the Eugene Levy, not the uh, the research center, although they're affiliated, but they're uh, they're um, they're um, they're private um, business. He thinks that there's a 65% chance of a world economic crisis by the end of 2015. I'm not going to venture to say whether I agree with that or not. You know whether it's sixty-five percent, whether you know, but I do think, uh, and you know, Steve Keen also says the same thing. We're on the verge of another crisis, um, and just today, uh, I haven't read it yet, but the Globe and Mail in Canada published a column by by someone else who said more or less the same thing. I think that uh, what happened at the end of the crisis, first of all, don't forget, we're four years into officially the end of the recession, right? And we're stuck in this secular stagnation position that, you know, we're just sort of bopping along, you know. And the longer we stay in this sort of uninspired economic situation, the higher the probability of falling back into recession. Um, Japan is back in a recession. Europe is probably, as we speak, in a recession and on the verge of deflation, right? Um, you have China slowing down, India slowing, slowing down, you have uh, Brazil slowing down, uh, you have consumers over-indebted, you have austerity policies. So if you believe, like I do, that effective demand is what drives the cycle, then where is demand going to come from? You have consumers in trouble, I see problems there. 
Uh, private sector not investing, I see problems there. I see government cutting back us through austerity, I've got problems there. And the only thing left is maybe exporting yourself back to growth, but the world around us is collapsing. And I just don't see where the growth is going to come from. And I think we're just going to end up going back into, into another recession, um, which is probably going to you know, last however long it's going to last. And then you're going to see governments sort of spending a little bit more. Uh, or if not, depending on who's in control in the United States at that time. But, you know, we may come out of it a little bit. And then uh, they're going to adopt austerity policies again. So we're going to get back into some sort of stagnationist um, situation. And then we're going to, you know, it's a big mess. It's a big mess. And, yeah, I do think we're on the verge of another potentially world crisis. Now, I was under the impression that the Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo A, was implementing Keynesian policies and that they were working pretty well. Yeah, I think that uh, the numbers that I saw um, just last week is that uh, uh, it's slipping back into... It's, it, it, I think it's actually back into recession officially now. And I think he's, dissolve, he's dissolving uh, government... Um, yeah, I think they're back in recession. Oh, it, well, it came as a surprise to me because just a few months before I saw that article, I had read they were doing great. They were doing better than the rest of us. Uh, but the austerity monster always comes back. It does. It does. And um, it's going to um, wreak havoc on our economies. So, what is your prescription here for preventing this or from preventing any future crises, or at least softening the blow? Yeah, well, you know, you need to regulate the hell out of the economy, uh, the banking system. we got to regulate the financial markets. You know, if someone can give me a good definition of what a derivative is and what it does, <laughs> I'd be happy but, you know, I mean, you got to regulate uh, and then you got to um, go back to um, activist fiscal policy. And I'll tell you one thing that I think one way that the left can succeed in countering this sort of credit card analysis of governments is to argue like Keynes did, that you have to separate government spending into um you know, your capital expenditures, your infrastructure, your public investments, and your current account spending. And, you know, government spending on chairs and tables and pencils and paper and, you know, and and I would probably have no problems with the current account being balanced. Uh, you know, there's no reason why government should be in deficit uh, for current expenditures. But then... You should have your capital account in, uh, in, in deficit, meaning you should be investing in you know, infrastructure, and, and that's what government should be doing. So if we succeed in convincing people that that's how it should be done, and if you look at the numbers, I haven't, but if you look at the numbers, I wouldn't be surprised if you have current account more or less balanced and, you know, probably not 
lately, but, but still, you know, that's how it should be done. And I think if we can convince people that that's a good thing, then I think, uh, you know, it's, it would be easier to sell, uh, um, you know, deficit infrastructure spending, because I think people would understand what they are about. And then tell them the rest of the thing, yeah, the state can live within its means by pencils, papers, chairs, desks, and all that, right? And infrastructure spending shouldn't be a hard sell. And do you like water? Do you like electricity? It is. It is. It is. It is because what, what, what the general picture people have now is that governments are just bloated and they spend too much. But when they, I think when people say that, they do refer to current account expenditures, you know. Well, in the United States, we spend a lot on defense, which could be called unnecessary. Yeah. I'm not sure if we need a three or four billion dollars worth of helicopters. Yeah, well, to keep all the immigrants out, probably, right? <laughs> no. Hey, no. That's probably what the, that's probably what the, 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 the Tea Party is saying. We need that to, uh, you know. To line Lockheed Martin. Just, yes, just, just to make just to make clear, I was I was joke I was being sarcastic on immigrants. <laughs> I don't want people to go to start saying, "Oh my God, Roshan is anti-immigrants." You know. No, I think by the context, people could tell you were just poking fun at America. Good. <laughs> Good. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that we should. Um, in terms of policy, I think that's where we should be pushing a lot. Governments to separate the two, you know, and that's more or less how private, the private sector does it as well, right? So all those people who think the government should be more like the private sector, that's one way that I would approve them being more like the private sector. Well, we've covered most everything we needed to. Great, great. Wanted to. Thank you very much. Uh, I wish you good luck in editing this. You're welcome. I doesn't look like I'll need to do very much editing. Excellent. Excellent. I will send you the link to Gilles Dostaler's book. I just found it. And um, I'm sure you'll like it. That's good because I don't think I would be able to spell that. Ha, good. I'll send you the link. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps it up. Well, thank you very much for having me, and good luck with your podcast. You're welcome. We will have all kinds of strange economic creatures on here. Perfect. I'd like to. Be, I like to think I am a strange creature, indeed. <laughs> <laughs>